There's a, uh, there's a book. It's actually not a very good book, but it's got a great title. Singleness, the gift no one wants. <laughs> now, if it's a gift from God, you see why it's not a very good title. And I hope that as we go through this tonight, you're going to understand. Here's the difficulty in talking about singleness. It's very difficult to commend one thing that the Bible commends without people thinking that you're, uh, you must be then denigrating the other thing or the opposite thing. So I have this problem all the time. If I talk about what makes hymns so great, then people are like, well, you don't like any other songs and you must hate all modern songs. I'm like, no, but I, I, how can I, I can't say everything all at once, right? Uh, I like that last song we did. I'd never heard that. That was nice. Um, so same thing with singleness and marriage. Um, the difficulty is to hold a high view of singleness and marriage because the Bible holds a high view of singleness and marriage. But it's hard to do, and the topic is fraught with all kinds of baggage. Uh, I think I understand some of that. I was um, single till I was 33, right? And a good bit of that time, I was the only single pastor at a large church. And I'm not kidding, you can ask my wife, she'll attest to this. Um, the senior pastor, God love him, would fairly regularly from the pulpit make some comment about my singleness. Yeah, he meant well, he meant well. But well meaning people say stupid stuff sometimes, right? So he, he would say things like this, Pray for Kevin Twitt to take a wife. <laughs> he would say things like, we'll know that revival has come when Kevin Twitt <laughs> takes a wife. Yeah. And at my ordination service, so this is my service where I take vows to become a minister of the gospel. Um, one of the, the first guys, the different people, you know, that have been special and important to me, pastors and elders all took part in the service, different points. The first guy that got up there said something about be, being single, and that theme just continued the whole way through, till finally the guy at the very end, Rick Punkashar, God love him, um, his daughter was Wendy's uh, roommate in college, and it's actually how we met. So I do love him, because I probably wouldn't have met her if it hadn't been for, for this guy. But at the end of the service, he invited all the single women to come up to the piano at the front of the service to meet me. Yeah. And Wendy was there, and she can tell you the rest of that story. But she didn't come forward. Yeah, she didn't come forward. Yeah, anyway, she can tell you the rest of that story. All right, so, you know, even well-meaning people say dumb things. And I will just tell you, in kind of the conservative evangelical church, it's hard to hear people speak positively about singleness. I hear people say things like, marriage is like the foundation of Western civilization. And I'm like... Really, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It says that Jesus is the foundation, right? So sometimes people mean well, but they basically say, well, they basically say this, that marriage is ultimate and then singleness is the plan B. Now, that's, that's what's said. Now, there actually are huge swath of the Christian church, namely the Catholic church, which has a particular view that singleness is what priests and nuns are called to. I disagree with that view, 
But all I'm saying is whether you grew up in evangelicalism or Catholicism, this issue of marriage and singleness is a complicated one, right? It's difficult to commend both singleness and marriage as biblical callings, and yet that's what we have to do. Because the Bible teaches that both of these are good choices based on giftedness and calling. So let's look at this passage, like I say, a notoriously difficult passage, but hopefully we're going to at least explain some of it. If I explained every weird verse in 1 Corinthians 17, we'd be here for two days. So I did actually put some stuff on the outline that I'm not even going to say, but you can go back and look at it. Um, And you can meet with me, we can talk about some of the other stuff if you want. All right, so let's dig in. We're going to start at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And right away, you find out that he's responding to some things that the Corinthians asked him about, because that's how it starts. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, in the Greek, it says, it is good not to touch a woman. But most every biblical scholar agrees that that's a euphemism for sex. The difficulty is whether he's talking about marriage or just sex, but we'll get into that. But literally it says it's good not to touch a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now jump down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 17 is really important in this whole chapter. This is kind of the principle that's driving all these other particular applications. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. For each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Jump down to verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, that means the engaged, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You know, I'll just say something here quick. A lot of people bring up this passage as Paul here is not claiming to be writing scripture. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is I don't have the actual words of Jesus on this point. 
Because whenever somebody in the New Testament refers to the Lord, they mean Jesus. I know when we pray and talk and we say Lord, we usually mean God the Father. New Testament, Lord always means Jesus, the person Jesus. So Paul's not saying, I'm not speaking on God's behalf as an apostle. What he's saying is, I don't actually have words of Jesus to quote. But he's actually reiterating that my words are faithful, right? And he just talked about how he lays down the rule in all the churches. He's very clear that he's not distinguishing his words as an apostle from God's words. In Paul's mind, they're equated, all right? So back to the text here. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Let me pray. I need to pray before we dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that you don't just leave us groping around in the dark, but you speak true, trustworthy words to us. Help us to understand them, apply them. Um, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first thing is this first verse. Now, concerning the matters you wrote about, it is good for a woman not to marry or not to have sexual relations or it's good not to touch, however literally you want to translate that. Here's the big question. It's a very important question. Is Paul saying his own view is it's not good to marry or is he quoting a saying of the Corinthians and responding to it? Many people read this text as Paul saying that marriage is not good. And then they try to figure out, well, how do you fit that in with other places the Bible talks about marriage? Because God, as we learned in week one, says it's not good for man to be alone. So what's Paul doing saying that it's good not to marry? And if you actually know your Bible pretty well, some of you might know there's a passage in 1 Timothy 4, which Paul also wrote. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to not marry. So is Paul teaching a doctrine of demons here? No. I think what he's doing is he's quoting a saying or a motto of the Corinthians. And he's saying, do I agree with it? About the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to marry. It's good for a man not to even touch a woman. And what does Paul say to that? What does Paul say to that? Well, all through this passage, what he says is, yeah and no. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. And you're going to see that as we go through this passage, right? Um, I think, again, part of the difficulty is that Greek, and the New Testament was written in Greek, does not have punctuation. 
All the letters are crammed together. They don't even have space in between the words in the most ancient manuscripts because parchment was very expensive and they use every bit of it. So when the translators translate, they use their best judgment as far as punctuation. And that means that there's no quotation marks when somebody's being quoted. This ends up being then a judgment call. I think the passage makes much more sense in light of what Paul has said elsewhere if you take him to be quoting a saying of the Corinthians, right? Because then you end up not making it out of sorts with other things that Paul has said. Unless you think Paul it just speaks out of both sides of his, his mouth. But I don't think that. And I don't think we have to take it that way. When you take verse, seven, verse 1 as a quote, then here's what you begin to see. That what was going on in Corinth is they were beginning to believe this view, influenced certainly by Greek philosophy, that abstaining from sex, even in marriage, is a more spiritual way to live. And there have been Christians throughout history who have believed that. Uh, St. Augustine, kind of, uh, great man, one of the most important thinkers in the history of the Western world, one of the most important Christian leaders, still taught that sex was a necessary evil. It was necessary to propagate the human race, but if you enjoyed it, that was sin. I don't think that that's biblical at all, but it, he was a very influential thinker, right? Um, maybe you know about the Shakers. You know about the Shakers? Yeah, they didn't have sex. So their church only grew by conversion growth, and there are no more Shakers. <laughs> Simple as that. There are no more Shakers, right? Made some, there's Shaker furniture, there's cool Shaker hymns, but no more Shakers, right? So there have, been, there have been people that have kind of had that view, but there are a lot of people that basically have a mild version of this view, maybe without even realizing it. There are a lot of Christians that seem to think that any kind of bodily enjoyment is somehow less spiritual, and that the more holy you are, the more miserable you'll be. While there may be around, you may be around Christians that don't actually teach that, but they certainly seem to model that, or they feel guilty whenever they enjoy something, right? And there can be lots of reasons for that. It can be bad teaching, it could be trauma, there can be all kinds of, of reasons, but the Bible doesn't support that kind of anti- enjoyment kind of aesthetic. It doesn't. As a matter of fact, there in 1 Timothy 4, Paul again says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received by thanksgiving. And he says that, Timothy, if you point this out to the brethren, you're a good minister of Jesus Christ, pointing out that they should enjoy the good creation that God has made. So Christians are not people that are more spiritual than God who think that the more spiritual and less physical your life is, the better you'll be. That's not Christianity. It's not Christianity, right? But it impacts the way people have thought about marriage and singleness without a doubt. You see, this interpretation, I think, thinking that the Corinthians were thinking it was more spiritual to not have sex, maybe even in marriage, explains why Paul has to talk about sex and marriage there in verse 5 right? When he says, do not deprive one another. Listen, this is what's fascinating. Think about how countercultural the Bible is. Well, maybe you need to understand a little bit about Roman culture to understand how countercultural this is. Nobody in the first century Roman culture would have batted an eyelash when Paul says the wife's body is not her own, but it belongs to the husband. 
That was just a matter of fact. Sexual morality was despicable in Roman society, right? But when Paul says the husband's body is not his own, but belongs to his wife, that's crazy. Like nobody in the first century thought that women had those kinds of rights. And then to say that God has a right to tell you to have sex with your spouse and that you're not allowed to quit having sex except just for a little while by mutual agreement and only you can devote yourself to prayer. Listen, I have a friend, Steve Garber. He says, where the rubber meets the road with today's college students, whether you actually want to follow Jesus or not, is does Jesus have a right to tell you what you can do with your body? That's where the rubber meets the road. And there's no getting around the fact that the Bible and that God claims that prerogative. Even to tell marriage, married people, even if you agree to quit having sex, you're not allowed to do it. Now again, if, if you find yourself in that situation where you feel you have to quit having sex, there's maybe a reason. It's probably worth talking to somebody, right? But notice the point there, right? Sex is an important thing that God gave. We're going to have a whole week on that, so I'm not going to get too farther into that right now. But do know this. One of the things that made Christianity incredibly attractive, particularly to women in the first century, was this revolutionary teaching on sexuality. It's really fascinating because today people think that what's wrong with Christianity is this outmoded idea of sexuality. And they think the idea that people should have rights over their own body and to get to say who they have sex with and when is like, of course, it's just common sense in our culture. It wasn't common sense in our culture until Christianity came into the world. That is a gift that Christianity bestowed on the world. That doesn't mean the church has always stewarded that gift well. But nonetheless, it's true. If you want to read about that, this fascinating little book, unfortunately, it's not a cheap book, but it's this book by a guy named Larry Hurtado, who's a, a historian of the, the first three centuries of Christianity. The book is this, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Not why did Christianity spread, but why did a particular, any particular person become a Christian? Because they had nothing to gain and much to lose in every sort of way. And how do you explain the remarkable growth of the church? How do you explain all the critics saying the problem with Christianity is it's a religion of women and slaves? Well, there was something about it that those people recognized mattered. So, there's one thing. Second, even though Paul comes against this idea that no sex is more spiritual, he also says there are some considerations and contexts for a sexually ascetic, ascetic meaning not having sex lifestyle as well. And this is what I mean when he says, is it good to not marry? No, but kind of in some contexts. That's what he's saying. And actually biblical ethics is like that. It's complicated, it's nuanced. You have to think about the situation and whatnot, but you're guided by this principle that we're going to talk about. Um, so what Paul says is, provided one is gifted for it, and in light of certain conditions. Look down at verse 25. 
26, 27, 26 especially, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. We don't know what that means. But it seems to be temporary and having to do with what was going on. We don't know if that's because of persecution. That's what most people think, that because of persecution, it might be better to not be burdened by having a family if you don't have to have one. There are things that single people can do that married people can't do. Likewise, there are things married people can do, I mean for the kingdom, that single people have a harder time doing. I mean, even a silly example, like I started doing college ministry RUF when I was single. Then I got married. Then I had kids, right? And at each stage, the ministry changes. I can't hang out late night playing video games in the dorms when I'm married. But I can be around more than when I had kids, right? So there, there's different advantages. There are advantages and disadvantages to both of those states. And that's why you can never say that one is always better than the other. A lot of it depends on the calling and the circumstances. And that's what Paul says. The frustrating thing is we don't exactly know what he means by the present distress. But the point is, there are some circumstances that might make singleness or marriage a better choice. Okay? So that's, what, that's kind of what we say there. Um, but again, like I said, Paul's teaching here is way ahead of its time in regard to um, sexuality. And I don't know, you might find this fascinating. A lot of times the Puritans get kind of ragged on as being kind of anti-sex. But do you know that it's true that there was a, a Puritan church in New England where a wife came to the church elders because her husband wasn't having enough sex with her and they disciplined him. It's true, it's true. Because they believed the Bible and they thought that that actually was a matter not just for their private marriage, but even for the whole community. It's a fascinating thing, it's pretty countercultural. You might think it was a cult if they said we should speak into that, but Paul says it matters to the whole covenant community. All right, what about verse 8 and 9? To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, that with passion is added into the English translations. Some people think it means better, to burn in, better than burning in hell, and some people better than burning with passion. I think most scholars now really take the side of burn with passion, and that's why it's in the translations that way. But again, it's a difficult thing. But here's what, rather than saying, uh, here's, if you try to put on first century glasses to read this, here's, here's what you need to realize. In Paul's day, women who were, whose husbands died, so widows or single women, would have faced incredible pressure to get married right away. There was tremendous pressure, particularly on women, to remarry within a year, and if they were divorced, within six months, for several reasons. One, acquiring property was tied in with being married, right? So it was disruptive, and there was societal pressure because of that. Also, women were expected to have three children, and in a day when the average life expectancy of women was, do you know how long? 20 to 30 years. If you're expected to have three children and then you only are going to live 20 to 30 years and a lot of women died in childbirth, there's incredible pressure. And here's what Paul's saying. You don't have to get married right away. It's okay. 
Do you understand how countercultural that is? He's saying, like, getting married and having children is not the ultimate thing. Like, singleness is also a valid calling, and you can serve God that way. It's actually very freeing when you understand what he's talking about. It's difficult for us to comprehend, unless you've been the only single pastor at a church like somebody I know, uh, the pressure to get married that people sometimes face, right? And people say stupid things all the time. I remember dear seminary professor of mine came um, after I'd gotten out of seminary. I was at Christ Community Church. I was working, and he came to do like a, a conference for the singles group, and he said some dumb thing about, you know, you know, why aren't you guys like asking girls out and whatnot? And I just said, Dr. Van Groningen, he's with the Lord now, so I can say this. I said, listen, if somebody's still single and they're over 30, there's probably a story there. And it's not enough for you to just cajole and lambast people, you know, in all seriousness, right? There's, there's, there's all these stories. There's so many stories about this, right? Well, what, what's this key? Remember I said verse 27 is verse 17 and then also repeats it down in verse 27 is the same kind of idea. Look at verse 17 again. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So there's all this kind of stuff that's complicated to try and figure out what's he talking about. What does he mean by the betrothed? What does he mean by the virgins, you know, in a passage I didn't even read? All this kind of stuff. Here's the basic principle. Everything must be done in light of the fact that this world is passing away. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, it's, these verses seem very strange, but when you kind of pull back the surface and look at deep under what's going on here, there's powerful kingdom theology at work here. In other words, the kingdom of God breaking into the now changes everything. It changes weeping. It changes rejoicing. It changes buying, marrying, etc. Here's the way Keller puts it. The gospel brings us a hope in the future of God that relativizes our relationships with all these other things. What Paul is saying is don't overinvest your heart in anything besides the kingdom. The future of God means radical freedom. It means ultimately there's nothing that is life and death for us except the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that they don't matter, but they're not ultimate. I like uh, Ann Steele. We sing some of her hymns sometimes, like Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul and that lovely source of true delight. And I, when I think about her hymns, one of the things I always like to point out to people is this, their sense of the longing for the kingdom puts all other longings in their place. It doesn't mean that all these other longings are inappropriate or unspiritual, right? But they get put in their proper place and their proper perspective. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Does God have a right to call you to be single? Does he have a right to call you to be married? And, you know, you may think like the one, of, you know, is harder to accept than the other, but depends. I'm sure if we went through, we, man, I remember when I was thinking about asking out Wendy, and I was thinking, geez, if I ask her out and she says no, that's going to suck. But if I ask her out and she says yes, that's frightening as well. And I really, you know, yeah, remember, I, I'm, I was 30, I was in my 30s, right? I've kind of gotten used to making the best of things, right? And getting used to kind of being free to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, right? So both of those were frightening prospects to me. 
And, and for me, it was like, well, is God big enough for what if? What if she says yes? What if she says no? Right? Uh, so for some people, like the idea, could God call you to be single? You're like, oh, please, anything but that. But for others, you might be, can God call you to be married? And you're like, oh, I don't know. That just scares me to death. Right? Probably depending on whether you have an independence or a dependence idolatry. Because you probably tend to go towards one of those two. Right? Well, a couple practical miscellaneous matters. Because this is one of those things, it's hard to even figure out how to organize this. But let me just give you some random thoughts. Remember that Jesus, who fully imaged God and Paul were both single, right? So you always got to remember that when you hear people talking about marriage as God's divine plan for almost everybody. Jesus and Paul were both single, though we think Paul had been married. He would have had to been because to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling group, required you to be married. We don't know. Did his wife die? Did she leave him when he became a Christian? We don't know. He was single, but he had been married. He obviously had been married before, which we'll get into a, a point about that here in a minute. Um, but here's the way I think about it. Singleness and marriage are both ways to show the world that Jesus is real and that having him in your life makes a difference. Whenever I do weddings, I always say this. Marriage is for more than just two that your marriage should be a kingdom resource. But that's true for your singleness as well. Your singleness is not just about you being able to do what you want and not have to answer to anybody. Because of course that's not true. You're not your own, the Bible says. You've been bought with a price. So whether you're called to be single, whether you're called to be married, it's not for you. It's not just for you. It's bigger than that. Both callings are difficult. And at least from my experience, the grass always seems greener than one that you're not. I always start out weddings this way, too. There are people, we listen, we resonate with weddings at some level, but we also, weddings can bring out some of the most difficult feelings. Because there are always in that room people who are married and don't want to be, people who aren't married and want to be. Every range, right? We can't just pretend that, oh, marriage, wonderful, everything's wonderful. Singleness, oh, everything's, you know, no, it's much more complicated than that. It really is, right? The church has to lift up both callings as glorious ways to advance the kingdom because that's what the Bible says, right? And um, there have been famous Christians who made very unwise decisions about this. I think about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was this great evangelist, right? The first American celebrity, right? Lived in the 1700s hung out for a little while with Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah, was so struck by their amazing marriage that he decided that he should get married. The problem was he traveled all the time. I think he went back and forth from England to America 26 times. He got married and he left and he was never there. I don't think he should have been married. His calling and his way of living his life was not conducive to married life. Right? It wasn't. Uh, here's point number four. Singleness is a gift. Paul says that. He says it's if you have the gift, right? Not a curse, right? Paige Benton Brown, now she's married, 
wrote this amazing article years ago, and I'll post it on our Facebook group. You guys can read the whole thing. Um, called Singled Out by God for Good. Listen to what she says. Much has been written in Christian circles about singleness. The objective is usually either to chide the married population for their misunderstanding and segregationism, or to empathize with the unmarried population as they bear the cross of Plan B for the Christian life. Bolstered only by the consolation prizes of innumerable sermons on 1 Corinthians 7 and the fact that you can cut your toenails in bed. Yet, singles, like all believers, need scriptural critique and instruction seasoned by sober grace, not condolences and putt-putt accompanied with pious platitudes. Every problem is a theological problem, and the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. Singleness is a gift, not a curse. Well, how do you know if you're called to be single? A couple thoughts. If Paul says singleness is a gift, there's some suggestion that you'll enjoy it. Again, somebody wrote that crazy book, Singleness, the Gift Nobody Wants. I think that misses the point. Paul is gifted for singleness, and he thinks it's great, and he's commending it to people, right? He enjoys it because he sees the value of singleness for advancing the kingdom. But he's not boastful of his singleness because it's a gift, not an achievement. He doesn't say, I wish you were like me and could like, be really sold out for Jesus, and not need a wife. He doesn't say that at all. He says it's a gift, not an attainment. It's not a spiritual hierarchy. It's important. It means you mustn't think of yourself as superior to those without this gift. Tim Keller suggests, again, this is speculation, that people with this gift must have a low level of need for romantic relationships. But if you think maybe that's me, beware. There are other reasons for this perceived lack of need. And I'm going to say something about that in a minute. But the gift doesn't always have to be permanent. This is important because I'm talking to college students now. Okay? And, um, you know, for singleness, for some people, is very much out of their control. Right? Think about Paul. Here he's talking about singleness. That's what he is when he's writing. But it wasn't his state before. Okay? So that means that this gift can be a gift for a season. Should never completely rule out what Keller suggests. Now, he's pastoring in Manhattan, right, where he's got lots of people in his congregation in their 20s and 30s who are still single. And he suggests periodically kind of assessing whether you think you're still called to singleness. Don't obsess about it all the time, but don't just say, nope, not me. I I don't know if many people should decide. Again, some, we can talk about particular circumstances. I don't know if many college students should say, nope, I don't think I should ever get married. I don't think I'm ever going to be married, right? We can talk about that, but I think that it's worth pondering, but for right now, a lot of you are single. And you know, we sing that song sometimes, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Remember that? You guys heard that one. It's this line in there that I always like to point out to people. It says, Um, 
joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Whatever station of life you're in, there's a joy to be found there. There's something to do and there's something to bear. But you might find yourself in a different station two, three, four, five, ten years from now, right? I didn't get married until I was 33, right? That didn't mean that I had to wait until I got married before I could serve God. There was something to do, something to bear at every season, at every stage of life, right? I do think sometimes the way the church holds up marriage as like the ultimate, like now you're really ready to like, you know, serve God. I don't think that's helpful at all. Because there's something to do, something to bear, joy to find in every station, right? But I think before you decide you have the gift of singleness, you should seek to examine your heart. And it's worth pondering a couple of these ideas. You may think you're content because of an independence idol. I I had some people get in my face about that. Like you've kind of basically lived your life in a way that you're afraid to be intimate or close to anybody and really open up your heart, but you kind of aren't living in line with that because you're surrounded yourself with all these roommates and people to just kind of never be lonely. And maybe you should actually, if you're going to decide to not actually reach out to anybody and pursue anybody, maybe you should live on your own for a little while and see what that feels like. And I did, and I got, you know, started dating her, what, six months? After that, it didn't take long. No, it, it, it was other factors. But I, don't, I, I think it was good for me to say, if I'm making a decision out of fear to not pursue anybody, I should probably taste some of the consequences of that rather than just convince myself that I didn't have any longings. I've always been good at trying to kill my longings, right? And so it might be going on. Um, there's this John Hyatt song that I love, but I, I won't even quote that. You can read that if you want. Um, some people are convinced that they're called to singleness because of deep pain and hurt, right? And maybe you've killed hope and you've killed desire. You can't stand to live with unfulfilled longings. I don't want to make light of that, but I want to raise it as a possibility. It may be that you're deeply selfish and irresponsible and not wanting to repent. It's also a possibility, guys. Paige Benton puts it this way, singleness can be a mere euphemism for self-absorption. Now is the you time. No wife to support, no husband to pamper. Well then, by all means, join three different golf courses, get a weekly pedicure, raise emus, and subscribe to people. Singleness is never carte blanche for selfishness. A spouse is not a sufficient countermeasure for self. The gospel is the only antidote for egocentricity. Christ did not come simply to save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves. And he most often rescues us from us through relationships, all kinds of relationships. And then I have to say this. Some are single because of the sake of the kingdom. And I I mean this in in two ways. For some people, singleness is obeying God. There are some who could be married, but it would be marrying somebody who's not a believer. And the scripture is clear that we're not to be unequally yoked, that Christians should be married to Christians. And so for some, obeying God may mean bearing that cost. And I can't mention this whole topic without talking about friends of mine that are 
part of the gay celibate Christian movement. You may not even know that that's a thing. And I know this is a particular week, difficult week to talk about that controversy, right, here at Belmont. I know this. And not everybody is of that um, or convinced that Scripture would require that. But there are a lot of friends of mine, actually, that have said that if I find myself gay, that the biblical calling would be to singleness. And I don't want to ever make light of that because this is a group of people who I very much respect who said no to sex to say yes to Jesus. And that's a big deal, right? That's singleness as a cost of discipleship. Now, you may not be convinced that the scripture requires that, but I would plead with you not to make light of those who've come to that conviction because that's a really big deal. And if you want to read more about that, you can look at this book I have afterwards um, by Mark Yarhouse. He's one of the leading um, experts on gender dysphoria and things like that. Um, this book, Costly Obedience, What We Can Learn from the Celibate Gay Christian Community. And I know some people don't even like using that term, but I use it because that's what folks in that movement tend to, to use that term as well, and I'm not going to fight with them about that. All right? So that's two things there. And you can come talk to me afterwards when you get coffee if you want to talk about that more. I know even bringing that up is like, oh, I don't know, you know, do we even want to talk about that? Yeah, we need to talk about that, right? We need not be afraid to talk about that. Um, but there are some uh, theological problems with um, singleness. And this is important. Man, I hear so many whacked Christian platitudes about singleness, right? And Paige Benton does a great job about talking about them. Let me, let me run through these. This is worth it, trust me. Um, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Right? You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work as though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful, as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. This is all crap theology. <laughs> and it's everywhere. And you all have probably read books teaching that very thing that you thought were awesome and changed your life. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I see people over at Bongo Java reading these books and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this. It'll probably get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Youth ministry is job security for RUF campus ministers. In some ways. There's a lot of bad theology that gets told kids in high school about relationships and about sexuality. And, and this is a time to grow up and to try and think more about what the Christian life is really about. And it's not about being afraid, and it's not about basically saying, you know, that until you're perfectly satisfied with God, you're never going to get the blessings that you want. None of that is true. The only thing that qualifies you for God's grace and God's blessings is Jesus, and he perfectly qualified you right? So be free. Be set free from bad theology. Martin Luther said bad theology is a cruel taskmaster, and there's a lot of it when you come to books on dating and books on relationships, right? 
Here's, she goes on. She says, accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculations about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of life he has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single because I am. And the best way to know God's will for your life is to look at where you are right now. Unless you're disobeying, unless you're disobeying clear commands of scripture, right? But Paul says there's freedom to be married or to be single. And there's a calling, right? So it's important. All right, last little bit. How do we glorify God as a single person? Well, the first is to not think singleness is the defining characteristic of who you are. There's lots of people that talk about, are you a Christian single or a single Christian? Christian should always be first, I think, because Christian is your identity. Single is a state, maybe temporary, maybe long-term, a calling, but your identity is a Christian, right? Tim Keller, I already said, encourages periodic marriage seeking. You take that, think about it, ponder that. Uh, But I will say this, there are probably some seasons when you shouldn't be seeking a mate, particularly when your life is in a crisis of some sort. Uh, It's really easy to build a false kind of intimacy during um, emotional trauma and crisis. Um, And and this too, last couple points, singleness does not exempt you from having to love sacrificially. It may mean that there's not one particular person that you're called to love in that sacrificial way but it doesn't mean that you're just free to do whatever you want and be free to just not care about people, right? You're still called to be in covenant relationships, friendships, where you're committed to one another for the sake of Christ, whether you're married or not. And now is the time to learn about that. Listen, one of the hard things about college is that when people rub you the wrong way, it's easy to just move on and find new friends. And my prayer is that you don't develop that kind of pattern because the days will come when it won't be so easy to just find new friends. And this is a time to really build a foundation of committing and sticking out and loving people even when it's hard and difficult. And if you want some, some to talk in, about wisdom, I'm not talking about enduring abuse, but I'm saying the stuff that's hard that we'd rather just run away from, don't do that. Don't build that pattern into your life. Um, And like I said, singleness is not just a stage of life where you're waiting to serve God. It's a time to serve God, right? Marriage is not a cure for loneliness, guys. In fact, being disconnected in marriage can actually make loneliness even worse. But loneliness can be a doorway into feeling what Jesus felt for us by leaving his father and coming to die. Listen, if it's one thing to be freaking out at 22 years old about whether you're going to get married, but when you're 33 and still single, it's different. It really is. But when you're 33 and still single, guess what? You get to taste a little bit of what Jesus' love felt like for him. Because what Jesus' love felt like for him was not warm fuzzies when he thinks about you, but torturous death on a cross and leaving this perfect relationship he had with his father because he'd rather die than live without you, right? And, and when you're like, man, I just can't handle this loneliness, you actually have a doorway in 
to understanding some of what Jesus experienced every day he walked this earth. You remember at the very end of his life, he asked his friends, just stay awake with me this night. They kept falling asleep, right? He had one of his friends betray him with a kiss, right? Whatever you've experienced and suffered, Jesus has felt it. And it actually takes the whole body of Christ to even help each other understand all of what Jesus suffered. That's why we should share your stories as a kingdom resource. Because I don't know some of what you suffered, but you have a doorway into understanding a part of what Jesus suffered that I don't. I've never been spat upon. I've never been publicly humiliated, but Jesus was, right? I've never had somebody in public just hurl insults at me. Some of you probably have, and Jesus has too, right? So rather than saying singleness is the gift nobody wants, singleness is actually a doorway into understanding something about Jesus, because Jesus was single until he died at 33, right? And he said, whoever, right, loses mother, father, brothers, sisters, for my sake, will find in the kingdom untold numbers of mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters, right? Let's pray.